you have a Bible, you can turn in the book of Genesis to chapter 37. Genesis 37, continuing our reading through the book of Genesis. We come this morning to Genesis 37, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. Lend your attention, this is God's word. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to their father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the blood and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garment, put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. This his father, thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. 
We come now to Matthew 15, and we'll read through verse 20. This is God's word. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Thus ends God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing upon his word. Father, we're so grateful for your word and uh, the light and the lamp, which it is, Father, uh, how it dispels darkness, it reveals, it illuminates, uh, it sets forth so plainly uh, your excellencies, Father, and our plight, your provision. And it continues to equip us and prepare us um, to walk the way that you have assigned to us, Lord, for in your good pleasure, Father, you have determined that our days on this earth would be as sojourners, uh, walking through uh, an oftentimes hostile wilderness. Uh, but you are the one who leads and guides. And so we ask even now that we would receive of this word uh, to be equipped, Lord, and to be strengthened, that we might be uh, discerning, and that we might look unto the true shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life, who leads and who guides and has promised to see us safely home. We pray all these things in his precious name. Amen. We've been reading Little Pilgrim's Progress in our household uh, lately. I don't know if you've seen the volumes that were produced um, I don't remember the publisher, but they're relatively recent, uh, very good retellings of John Bunyan's classic tale um, as the little pilgrim uh, makes his way uh, to the celestial city. Uh, the well-known scene is uh, that evangelist warns pilgrim um, about encountering flatterer on the way, um, the potential uh, to be uh, misled by flatterer's words, they have an appearance of encouragement and an appearance of goodness, but uh, that is not their true intent. And Bunyan very clearly had much of what Christ teaches in these passages and the preceding passages in mind as he constructed his allegory of the Christian journeying through life, his eyes fixed upon the celestial city. You know that Christian's way was set with all sorts of dangers, big dangers and little dangers, but all having the same ultimate effect. Apollyon and flatterer alike had one intention, namely to take Christian from the way of life, to keep him from reaching the celestial city. 
The Lord has just told us that the way, the Christian way, the way of life is going to be hard. He called it a narrow way. He called it a narrow gate, telling us that the life of discipleship, the life of following after the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and obedience was going to be difficult and that severely. There are going to be lots of different difficulties that arise, but the image itself is very evocative. Is it not a constricted, narrow way, a narrow, hard-to-spot gate, a loneliness, perhaps, attending it? His words fill it out. Persecution, wrestling with the flesh, wrestling with our heart's desire to please man and not God, wrestling with a pursuit of godliness, righteousness, that kingdom which we ought to seek first. All of these things contribute to the difficulty. But wait, it gets worse. (laughs) The Lord here says not only is the way hard, but there are people who want to mislead. And they don't seem to be just human agents either. While there's certainly a human activity that we can glimpse in the false prophets, there's also a darker register going on. As these human beings seek to deceive, to destroy, signaling their true allegiance to the one who deceives and destroys, the one who destroys by deceiving. The first thing that we can perhaps note is that the Lord warns us. That's how he starts, right? Beware of the false prophets. I think this strikes at any sort of Pollyannish view of the world and particularly teachers that set themselves forward as those who speak on behalf of God. He says, beware, like, warn, take heed, pay attention. This is dangerous. I think there can be a temptation for us and I think it comes from a good place to think no 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 there's 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 nothing harmful about what's going on uh, over here or over there so to speak you hear certain teachers and you think well that's you know that's fine it's nothing nothing dark nothing devious about that I think it comes from a good place. You want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. You want to think well of everybody. But the first thing the Lord Jesus Christ says, we're not permitted to have a certain Pollyannish view of the world. We have to take true stock of what is truly dangerous. And he says false prophets are dangerous. The entire tenor of this passage is one of warning You can think of the father who would warn his son about certain dangers. The mother who warns his son about certain dangers. It comes from experience. It comes from knowledge. It comes from a place of hard-won wisdom that's then communicated to those who perhaps don't know yet, who are going to have to take their lumps, so to speak, but still you wouldn't have them go off ill-equipped. In many ways, that's what we do as parents, isn't it? We try our best to take something of the hard-won wisdom 
that the Lord has granted us through our many failures, through his constant faithfulness, through years wrestling with God's word, and we seek to give it to them so they don't have to fail in the same ways. So they don't have to experience the same hurts. We would spare them that. And there's a goodness to that. It makes sense. The Lord has his purposes and his plans, and we can rest in that. But the plain goodness of that warning from one in the know to one not in the know is obvious, is it not? And that's what we get here. The Lord is in the know. <laughs> he knows because he has cared for his people since the very beginning. And one of the enemy's choicest and chiefest attacks is to assail the truth of God. To kick up confusion over the truth. So if we want to observe first that God warns us we ought to observe, second, that God does give us true prophets. That's assumed here, isn't it? This is beware false, meaning there are true. <laughs> Israel had always had this difficulty. This is all, if you read Israel's history, this has been a consistent problem in the history of Israel. God would send his true prophets, but then... Their voice was either one or just a handful amidst many voices, all trying to declare what God was saying. One of the clearest episodes of this is Jeremiah. Jeremiah would go and he'd say something and then a whole host would be like, no, that ain't right. Thus says the Lord. But you're privy. You know Jeremiah has stood in the Lord's counsel. You know that he's walked with the Lord. You know he's been commissioned by the Lord. And so each time when Jeremiah sets his word forth, and it's combated by these hosts of other prophets saying, no, that's not what the Lord says. That's not what the Lord says. You're indignant at first. You're like, well, you know Jeremiah has been sent. But consider it from Israel's perspective. Considered from the non-Jeremiah perspective. I found myself sympathizing with this time and time again. If I'm listening to a whole host of people who are all saying, thus says the Lord, what on earth am I supposed to do? Where does that leave me? I mean, especially in those early days. You know, you have your Bible on a shelf. Israel had it rehearsed in her oral tradition. Yes, they had access to it. But even some of the things that the prophets were saying weren't directly contradicting doctrine. The false prophets were coming and saying, the exile's not going to be that long. Jeremiah's like, no, it's going to be long. Israel's supposed to either hope or respond to Jeremiah's word. How do they decide for that? Kings were coming saying, okay, are we going to lose? Jeremiah's saying, yeah, you're going to lose. Other prophets being, no, you're not going to lose. Your king's like, what am I supposed to do with this? Why bring this up? The complexity of the landscape. Well, I think it's kind of refreshing, actually. Because we always tend to think that our time is the worst that's ever been. We tend to think that no one ever had to live through the difficulties we're living through. Mark how similar they must have felt. Who's telling the truth? Where is the truth in all of this? There's so many voices all claiming to be true. 
each seeking to discredit the other. How am I supposed to make my way through this wilderness? Well, it's refreshing to know that they had to wrestle with the same thing we have to wrestle with. Isn't that an accurate description of the landscape? You tell me, what's true? There's this raging base suspicion now that's been fomented even over the very concept of truth. How do any of us know what's true? We don't trust the people who are telling us this thing over here because they're telling it from there, and we don't trust them anymore. So we go and we carve out these little alternative rooms, and that's dangerous too, because how do you know you're not just going into an echo chamber and starting to say what you think is true and looking for people who are confirming what you think is true? They would have felt that too. There's nothing new under the sun, beloved. It might be turned up a bit because of the proliferation of media and the number, the sheer number of voices that have taken their place upon the stage. You know, there are only so many people who could fit into Jerusalem. Now you've got to contend with YouTube. There's no limit. The medieval church debated how many angels could stand on the head of a pin. How many pundits can jam themselves into YouTube? Same number of angels on the head of a pin. <laughs> a lot we ought to feel something of our desperate need for the Lord the one who is true and be reminded that we're not permitted to devolve into this rank suspicion over truth itself because God has always sent true prophets and in these last days he's spoken through his son that's what Hebrews 1 says Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Amidst all the noise, amidst all the clamor, the one thing that we can be confident of is that God speaks. And not only that, but his word assures us that amidst all the noise, amidst all the clamor, the true sheep will hear his voice. That's what Jesus says, John 10, 4 and 5. The sheep follow the shepherd because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I can remember living in Ukraine, having my whole day just full of strange voices. I never got to the point where I could just understand passively. If I was to engage into a conversation, if I was going to tap into what was being said around me, I had to like really focus and listen because it was a foreign language. It was in my native language. So most of the time I wasn't doing that. So it was just this cacophony of sound, harsh gutturals. That's actually, I over-exaggerated that. It actually sounds much nicer than that. Privit. <laughs> But I can remember how much comfort would come to me when at the end of the day I would call my father and I would hear that voice, that familiar voice, that voice I knew, that voice was constantly full of compassion, tenderness, care, willingness to talk. I knew it. I knew it from an ocean away. I knew it through a bad connection on a janky phone. 
because he's my father. The father speaks. He's spoken through the son. He provides true instruction, true revelation of who he is as holy and just and as gracious and merciful. One who doesn't wink at sin, but one who provides for sinners. He speaks, beloved. Look, we live in this time and place. We can't but be affected by it. God's word calls us to attend to that deep, diabolical erosion that takes place in terms of the suspicion over the very concept of truth. God's word is true, beloved. And he assures us that he speaks, and he doesn't even leave us on our own to hear him. As Christ assures that the sheep will hear his voice because they're his. And thus we see the spirit working through that. Isn't that what the son is doing right now? He's speaking to you. Are you hearing him? Can you hear him? He says, beware false prophets. That's what he's telling you right now. The very fact that this communicative exchange is taking place is proving the very point I'm trying to make. The king speaks, and he says, beware of false prophets. We make benefit of this in a couple of ways. Rejoice that there are true prophets, beloved. Rejoice that not only has the shepherd spoken, but he's promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. There have been times in history when the church has almost all but disappeared, but she never has entirely disappeared. Of old, we reflect upon Elijah and the prophets of Baal and how his frustrations came to a boiling point, and he said, Lord, kill me, nobody's left. He said, that's not true. Not only are you left, but there are 10,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Why? Because the Lord is committed to making known his glory and seeing his promises unto fulfillment. Great is his faithfulness. And beloved, I assure you, you've been the recipient of this great faithfulness. Consider how many the Lord has put in your life to truly declare the, the word of the Lord to you. Every single one of us can likely rehearse any number of true pastors, true elders who have spoken this word, true Christians who have taken up the truth in love and encouraged you. Both the official ministry and the unofficial exhorting of one another in the truth of God is the work of the spirit of truth coming from the Father in the Son, unto those upon whom he has set his love. Give thanks for faithful ministers, O Lord. But Calvin also warns us, he says, just because there are false does not give us excuse to dismiss true. And that's dangerous. You can feel the temptation to look at everyone askance. Anyone who would presume to speak in the name of the Lord warrants full suspicion. Such not ought to be. 
We ought to feel something of the precariousness to which the Lord calls us here. Beware of false prophets. Implicitly heed, follow the true. This leads us to give thanks for the true, but also to acknowledge, oh Lord, we need wisdom for this, do we not? We need the discernment that can only come from your spirit. More so as we consider next the spiritual nature of the false prophets. We're to see in their activity no mere human activity, though there is human activity to it. What is a false prophet? Well, Jeremiah sums up the matter from one angle. Jeremiah 14, 14. The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. What is a false prophet? Someone the Lord did not send? Someone to whom the Lord did not speak? That's how he sums it up for Jeremiah. Negatively, the Lord says, I didn't send that person. I didn't speak to that person. Positively, it's people speaking lies in the name of God. That's diabolical. (laughs) Because we've already been shown that's exactly what the devil does. Think back to Matthew 4. That's exactly how he attacked Christ. It wasn't a full-on frontal assault. It was, didn't God say? Isn't this what God said? In order to dislodge him from his messianic mission. It's exactly what he did in Genesis 3. Did God really say? No, 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 that's not what God said. A false prophet is one who cloaks a lie by declaring it to be true. And in this, they signal that they are agents of darkness. For this is the very way of darkness. There's this terrible scene in Peter Pan where Captain Hook tries to kill Peter. Children, have you read Peter Pan? Captain Hook tries to kill Peter. How? Do you remember this scene? He poisons his medicine. The medicine that Peter takes each night. What a treacherous and diabolical move. That which is supposed to lead to life, medicine, cloaks that which will kill, namely poison. Well, it's no wonder the Lord says, beware, take care. These are not open attacks. There is an underhandedness to this. But what I want us to see, what I want us to feel here is that while the prophets, the false prophets are clearly human beings, we're tuned to the spiritual reality of what they're doing. It's hard to overstate how much we've been affected by the materialist bent. The current worldview is essentially that unless you can evaluate it, see it, touch it, It's not real. That's materialism. That what you see is the full story. There's nothing more. In Acts 13.10, Paul meets a false prophet. Elimas, what does he declare? You son of the devil. 
And it's not just a curse word. <laughs> you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight path of the Lord? Paul sets forth several of the marks of a false prophet here, an enemy of righteousness, one who deceives, one who leads away from the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul sees in this activity not merely the sin of men, but also the work of the devil. John understands the work of false prophets similarly. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So where do these spirits come from? Test these spirits. Not every spirit is from God. Where do they come from? He says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. He wants us to understand the activity of the false prophets as spiritual in nature. That behind all of the mundane activity of these pseudo-prophets, their greed, their arrogance, their cruelty, all these mundane matters, there seethes this dark power. That it's not just a fight against flesh and blood, beloved. That the nature of the struggle is spiritual. It's not hard to see this, is it? Think about the fervor that people can get kicked up into over ideas. You think that's just bare materialism going on? You think that destructive forces being unleashed by certain slogans is just flesh and blood? That doesn't pass the sniff test. That's what John says. It would be tempting here to... Receive Jesus' words, beware false prophets, and think, great, I just need to learn more, study more. I just need to know more. And while proficiency and knowledge of God's word is indispensable for this battle, understanding the true nature of this battle means that our first posture is not, well, I'll just master the content. Our first posture is, oh, I'm up against something I don't understand. Hmm. That is way more powerful than me. That has ruined lives, indeed societies. Perhaps humility is my posture. Perhaps meekness is the right posture. Because you're outmatched, beloved. In your tiny little brain. It's a pretty paltry sword. We've made this point before. If the call here is to withstand a wolf attack, it's a terrifying prospect. I don't want to fight a wolf. But if I had a rifle, I'd like my odds. The call here is to stand against a werewolf attack. You're fighting something that's near mythical. how Paul begins his warning in Ephesians 6, isn't it? Is this weird? Good. It should be weird. The world is way weirder than you think it is. 
Like the Bible's way weirder than you think it is. Again, your silly understanding is not the litmus test for what is. This is strange. Let the strangeness humble you. You're fighting ghosts in a desert. <laughs> that's what Paul says, Ephesians 6, is it not? We do not battle flesh and blood. It's like, ah, oh, that's not what he means. So, no, that's what he means. That, that's what he means, beloved. It doesn't mean call ghostbusters, but it does mean that there's more going on than meets the eye, and you should feel the intensity of the more than meets the eye and let it have its humbling effect in your soul. We do not battle flesh and blood. We battle the devil's schemes. This present darkness, powers and principalities. How do you fight that? How do you stand against that? Again, you've got to make your house secure because robbers are coming. I like most of your chances. Not all of your chances. <laughs> but most of your chances. If an army of ghosts is attacking your house, you don't have a chance on your own. That's what he's saying here. Our real spiritual struggle is this Christian life actually is. Beloved, we were made to know God. The unseen things are real. Just feel how much we have freighted the seen things with the real. It's not your strength. It's not your understanding. What does Paul say in Ephesians? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Unless the first acknowledgement is I'm up against a foe, the likes of which my understanding, my strength is like a pebble against a ghost ship. Then I'm going to be postured wrongly for the fight. But it doesn't mean that we're without recourse. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's by running to him in faith. It's by see, receiving his word in meekness. It's by living out of a humble reliance upon the shepherd and his guidance through prayer that we find ourselves partaking of an otherworldly power. But I don't want to overstate the case. If on the one hand, we've got to give the devil his due, so to speak. On the other, we do well to remind ourselves that before the living and true God, he's an ape. We compare our strength to his and we reasonably say he's a little G God. We compare his strength to the true and living God. We compare him to the son of the most high and we're reminded that Jesus at his weakest moment in Matthew 4 said, get away from me, Satan. And the snake slithered off into the wilderness. He's going to show time and time again that his authority is not confined just to the seen things. He has all authority, all power in the unseen realm and in the seen realm, in heaven and on earth, beloved, such that when he meets a legion of demons, they're afraid. What have we to do with you, son of the Most High? They cry out in fear. 
at the sight of a wandering prophet. And he says, go. And they go, beloved. Compared to us, we are outmatched when we consider our enemy. Compared to Christ, there's no contest. The greater David has come, beloved. David set himself forward to fight a monster by showing that he beat lions and bears and was ready for a giant. The Lord Jesus Christ came and he crushed the head of a dragon, beloved. And you belong to him. And he delights to make known his strength in your weakness. Feel the danger which seethes around us. Don't despair. Run to the dragon slayer who is infinitely for us. And mark how he equips us here. This is our last consideration. The shepherd gives guidance. The king gives instruction. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. And the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you'll recognize them by their fruits. This isn't the first time God's word takes up the question of how do you recognize a false prophet? Both Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, among other places, give various answers. Deuteronomy gives a very practical test. If the prophet predicts something and it doesn't come to pass, he's a false prophet. It's remarkable that that's still pertinent. There are still people who are like making these massive claims over what's going to happen. And then the time passes, it doesn't happen. And you can just go ahead and say, you're a false prophet. I don't have to listen. I don't have to consider you anymore. You've disqualified yourself from the race. I'm not interested. The other test that Deuteronomy gives is even if the prophet works signs and wonders, do they lead you away from the true and living God? If they lead you away from the true and living God, I don't care how many magic tricks they do. They're a false prophet. Again, mark there this intense awareness that there are dark powers in this world. And people partake of them in this world. God's word says, I don't care what magic tricks they do. If they lead you away from the true and living God, if they lead you away from the path of righteousness, they're false. In some way, the Lord's test is even simpler. You shall know them by their fruits. <laughs> Now, Mark first, that's rather counterintuitive to us, or I guess by us, I mean us. Because what would we think the number one test for a false prophet is? Well, have they memorized the Westminster Standards? <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's a doctrine test that would come to our minds first and foremost. And make no mistake, Scripture gives that test. You hear it in 1 John 4. Test the spirits. Well, how do you test them? Well, no spirit that says Jesus Christ has not come from God. If a spirit is saying Jesus Christ has not come from God, it's a content, teaching, doctrine test. You can know that person is false. But that's not what Christ says here. What does he say here? Here. 
He says if they don't have Christian character. <laughs> That's what the fruit is evidence that this whole notion of trees and fruit in Matthew, it's very, very simple. Jesus Christ speaks in such plain language here. We don't have to overpress, overstrain this image. It's you will know them by what they do. You will know them by their manner of life. Does it whiff of Christ? If it doesn't, I mean, it seems pretty plain to me. Do you feel like I'm imposing that interpretation on the text? Anybody? Does anybody here, show of hands, <laughs> do you feel like I'm imposing that interpretation on the text? Well, that's good, because neither did Calvin. <laughs> and he's almost always right. <laughs> it's such a plain text. In fact, even though it makes us uncomfortable, this is exactly what Paul says to Timothy. He says, guard your life and guard your doctrine, and in this way you will save yourself and your hearers. He says the manner of life is also important. You can discredit the whole thing, Timothy, if you don't watch out for your life. How do you know a Christian teacher? Well, he looks like a Christian. <laughs> Which is just to say he looks like Christ. As challenging as that is for us, it's self-evident. Given our understanding of what it means to be regenerate. We understand that God must do a new work in the human heart. That a new birth much must take place. That something new must dawn by the power of the gospel in the heart. And then a life opens up from that new heart that is recognizably in continuity with the new heart. Again, don't, don't downplay the plainness with which this test is set forth. So confident is the Lord in the truth of the gospel and its power to generate godliness that he can say, look out for godliness and you'll know someone who truly participates in the truth of the gospel. So again, hear that, but then know that there are complications. Are there not? Notice first that if the evaluative paradigm is fruit, it resists a snap judgment. In fact, the very warning that they come to you in sheep's clothing seems to warrant that what meets your eye at first is insufficient for gaining a true understanding. Again, we only have a couple of farmers, and by a couple, I mean literally one couple. <laughs> But the agricultural life is one of patience, waiting. Some plants bear fruit, but you don't know right away. You have to wait to see. To make a staff judgment over any little plant or bush potentially ruins the life that is going to come from that plant or bush. 
That agricultural image here counsels patience. It counsels the very thing he's been instructing us. Don't be hasty to judge. He affords us that luxury because he is the shepherd who keeps and guards. We can also point out that even true teachers get it wrong. Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then like in the next breath, he tried to get him off the way of the cross. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Like the chief among the apostles. And that wasn't the first time that he did that. Or that wasn't the only time that he did that. He did the same thing in an episode where he and Paul had to have it out publicly. Where his actions as an apostle were potentially misleading from the way of the gospel. And so Paul rebuked him. I don't know that he said, get behind me, Satan. But it's the same idea. So even though the test from the Lord is fruit comes from a good tree and good trees come from my father, even good trees get it wrong. Just as Peter did. And so again, we're called not to set up illegitimate standards for this evaluation. It's not perfection. It's recognizable participation. I trust you can all rejoice in that as you consider your own lives being marked not by perfection. But ask, is there recognizable participation? Because the warning that he levies against false prophets has a broader effect, a broader reach. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The verse seems to be working in two different ways. One, we can be sure that even if false prophets ultimately deceive man, they won't deceive God. So there's encouragement to be had there. So they may pull the wool over your eyes. They may do great damage to households, but they will not escape the one who sees the heart. They will not escape the judge who judges perfectly. And there's encouragement for us there to persevere in the face of those seasons where it seems like households are being torn asunder and you're pretty convinced that it's not done in righteousness. But you can persist knowing the Lord will judge. The Lord will sort it all out. And even though a flock being mauled by a wolf in sheep's clothing is dreadful to consider, we're not called to kill the wolf. We're called to be confident before the one who will judge justly and make all things right. But we have to hear this call is also another call to ask our own hearts. Is there true participation? Beloved, not perfection, 
but true participation. A heart that is seen that apart from Jesus Christ, there is no life. A heart that is seen in the cross, no, that's what my sins deserve. A heart that is seen in the cross, no, this is a remarkable provision of grace and mercy. And a heart that runs back to there time and time again. Whether you've stumbled into sin or whether the first flickers of sin's temptation burst forth, you're running to the cross. And those eyes fixed in faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ are set within a new person who earnestly desires to follow him and who is earnestly longing for the day when our sin will be put off entirely. Perfection. And we will be like him as we see him as he is. You cannot rest, beloved, in pure, formal participation in the church. There must be true spiritual participation in the Lord Jesus Christ, according to God's word here. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. This isn't fruit that you have to muster up by your own strength. It's fruit that God is pleased to bring forth. And so you're left with the question, do I have a true share in Christ? Can I see anything that would indicate that indeed my portion is with him and this by the grace of God? As you wrestle with that, beloved, I pray the spirit grant you the eyes to see and to take heart if there is and to run to him if there isn't. Because there is still time, beloved. One need not resign themselves to being a bad tree. <laughs> he is the creator, the one who showcases that he can make trees good, that he can cause new birth, that he can bring light into a dark heart, that he can bring life out of a dead heart. Beloved, he does these things. He's pleased to do these things. And so if you find yourself without evidence, as it were, cry out to him. Cry out that he would graft you into the vine so that you may partake of the life that he freely gives to those who come to him. Cry out that he would give you the eyes of faith to see the truth. That Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, the Lamb who takes away sin and the only one who can give eternal life. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we give you thanks for your word. Sanctify us by your word, for your word is truth. Give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see, for we ask in Christ's name, amen.